Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast you've ever known of. Talking about chapter 111, there goes the vicar. There he goes. Salute to you, sir. He was kind of a dick, though. But, I mean, still, he shouldn't have had to be dead. Lady Rostova says, with only 11 chapters left, I hope Philip does get some money and be able to go on and live his dreams. I think that's too much to hope for, isn't it? I mean, I hope that too. I, I think that would be a nice ending. But do we really expect a nice ending at this point? I am Norwegian, said capital F. F in the chat for poor old vicar of Blackstable. Jan Brunt said good riddance. Fair enough. Fair enough. He was a terrible husband. He was a terrible, um, I don't know, guardian, I suppose, of young Philip. And Laura Weistich said, I want to know what he confessed. Yeah, that was a little bit of a tease, wasn't it? Do you think we'll find out is the real question? That's the real question. Um, I, I do think we'll find out. That's my guess. Um, but anyway, let's just keep reading. Let's just keep going straight on through to the other side with chapter 100 and... Wait, what do we have to begin? 112, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Goes like this. Josiah Graves, in his masterful way, made arrangements, becoming but economical for the funeral. And when it was over, came back to the vicarage with Philip. The will was in his charge, and with a due sense of the fitness of things, he read it over. He read it to Philip over an early cup of tea. It was written on half a sheet of paper, and left everything to Mister Carey, had to his nephew. There was the furniture, about eighty pounds at the bank, twenty shares in the ABC Company, a few in Allsop's Brewery, some in the Oxford Music Hall and a few more in a London restaurant. They had been bought under Mr. Mr. Graves' direction, and he told Philip with satisfaction, You see, people must eat, they will drink, and they want amusement. They're always safe if you put your money in what the public thinks necessities. His words showed a nice discrimination between the grossness of the vulgar, which he deplored but accepted, and the finer taste of the elect. Altogether, in investments, there was about £500, and to that must be added the balance of the bank and what the furniture would fetch. It was riches to Philip. He was not happy, but infinitely relieved. Mr. Graves left him after they had discussed the auction, which must be held as soon as possible, and Philip sat himself down to go through the papers of the deceased. The Reverend William Carey had prided himself on never destroying anything, and there were piles of correspondence dating back for fifty years, and bundles upon bundles of neatly docketed bills. He had kept not only letters addressed to him, but letters which himself he had himself had written. There was there was a yellow packet of letters which he had written to his father in the forties, when, as an Oxford undergraduate, he had gone to Germany for the long vacation. Philip read them idly. It was a different William Carey from the William Carey he had known, and yet there were traces in the boy which might, to an acute observer, have suggested the man. The letters were formal and a little stilted. He showed himself strenuous to see all that was noteworthy, and he described with a fine enthusiasm the castles of the Rhine. The falls of Schaffenhusen made him 
offer reverent thanks to all powerful creator of the universe, whose works were wondrous and beautiful. And he could not help thinking that they who lived in sight of this handiwork of their blessed maker must be moved by the contemplation to lead pure and holy lives. Among some bills, Philip found a miniature which had been painted of William Carey soon after he was ordained. It represented a thin young curate with long hair that fell over his head in natural curls, with dark eyes, large and dreamy, and a pale, ascetic face. Philip remembered the chuckle with which his uncle used to tell of the dozens of slippers which were worked for him by adoring ladies. The rest of the afternoon and all the evening Philip toiled through the innumerable correspondence. He glanced at the address and at the signature, then tore the letter in two and threw it into the washing basket by his side. Suddenly he came upon one signed Helen. He did not know the writing. It was thin, angular, and old-fashioned. It began, My dear William, and ended, Your affectionate sister. Then it struck him that this was from his own mother. He had never seen a letter of hers before, and her handwriting was strange to him. It was about himself. Dear, my dear William, Stephen wrote to you to thank you for your congratulations on the birth of our son and your kind wishes to myself. Thank God we are both well and I am deeply thankful for the great mercy which has been shown me. Now that I can hold a pen I want to tell you, and dear Louisa, myself, how truly grateful I am to you both for all your kindness to me now and always since my marriage. I am going to ask you to do me a great favour. Both Stephen and I wish you to be the boy's godfather, and we hope that you will consent. I know I am not asking a small thing, for I am sure you will take the responsibilities of the position very seriously, but I am especially anxious that you should undertake this office because you are a clergyman as well as the boy's uncle. I am very anxious for the boy's welfare, and I pray God night and day that he may grow into a good, honest, and Christian man. With you to guide him, I hope that he will become a soldier in Christ's faith and be all the days of his life God-fearing, humble, and pious. Your affectionate sister, Helen. Philip pushed the letter away and, leaning forward, rested his face on his hands. It touched him deeply and at the same time surprised him. He was astonished at its religious tone, which seemed to him neither mawkish nor sentimental. He knew nothing of his mother, dead now for nearly twenty years, but that she was beautiful, and it was strange to learn that she was simple and pious. He had never thought of that side of her. He read again what she said about him, what she expected and thought about him. He had turned out very differently. He looked at himself for a moment. Perhaps it was better that she was dead. Then a sudden impulse caused him to tear up the letter. Its tenderness and simplicity made it seem peculiarly private. He had a queer feeling that there was something indecent in his reading what exposed his mother's gentle soul. He went on with the vicar's dreary correspondence. A few days later he went up to London and for the first time in two years entered by by day the hall of St. Luke's Hospital. He went to see the secretary of the medical school. He was surprised to see him and asked Philip, curiously, what he had been doing. Philip's experiences had given him a certain confidence in himself and he had a different outlook upon many things. Such a question would have embarrassed him before, but now he answered coolly, with a deliberate vagueness which prevented further inquiry, that private affairs had obliged him to make a break in the curriculum. Now he was anxious to qualify as soon as possible. The first examination he could take was in midwifery, midwifery, 
and the diseases of women, and he put his name down to be a clerk in the ward devoted to feminine ailments. Since it was holiday time, there happened to be no difficulty in getting a post as obstetric clerk. He arranged to undertake that duty during the last week of August and for the first two of September. After this interview, Philip walked through the medical school, more or less deserted, for the examinations at the end of the summer session were all over, and he wandered along the terrace by the riverside. His heart was full. He thought that now he could begin a new life, and he would be and he would put behind him all the errors, follies, and miseries of the past. The flowing river suggested that everything passed, was passing always, and nothing mattered. The future was before him, rich with possibilities. He went back to Blackstable and busied himself with the settling up of his uncle's estate. The auction was fixed for the middle of August, when the presence of visitors for the summer holidays would make it possible to get better prices. Catalogues were made out and sent to the various dealers in second-hand books at Turkenbury, Maidstone and Ashford. One afternoon, Philip took it into his head to go over to Turkenbury and see his old school. He had not been there since the day when, with relief in his heart, he had left it with the feeling that thenceforth he was his own master. It was strange to wander through the narrow streets of Turkenbury, which he had known so well for so many years. He looked at the old shops, still there, still selling the same things, the booksellers with school books, pious works, and the latest novels in one window and photographs of the cathedral and of the city in the other, the games shop with its cricket bats, fishing tackle, tennis rackets and footballs, the tailor from whom he had got clothes all through his boyhood, and the fishmonger where his uncle, whenever he came to Turkenbury, bought fish. He wandered along the sordid street in which, behind a high wall, lay the red brick house which was the preparatory school, Further on was the gateway that led into King's School, and he stood in the quadrangle round which were the various buildings. He was just four, and the boys, sorry, it was, he was just four, and the boys were hurrying out of school. He saw the masters in their gowns and mortarboards, and they were strange to him. It was more than ten years since he had left, and how many changes had taken place. He saw the headmaster. He walked slowly down from the schoolhouse to his own talking to a big boy who Philip supposed was in the sixth. He was a little changed, tall, cadaverous, romantic as Philip remembered him, with the same wild eyes, but the black beard was streaked with grey now and the dark, sallow face was more deeply lined. Philip had an impulse to go up and speak to him, but he was afraid he would have forgotten him, and he hated the thought of explaining who he was. Boys lingered talking to one another and presently some who had hurried to change came out to play fives. Others struggled, straggled out in twos and threes and went out of the gateway. Philip knew they were going to the cricket ground. Others again went into the precincts to bat at the nets. Philip stood among them, a stranger. One or two gave him an indifferent glance, but visitors attracted by the Norman staircase were not rare and excited little attention. Philip looked at them curiously. He thought with melancholy of the distance that separated him from them, and he thought bitterly how much he had wanted to do and how little done. It seemed to him that all those years vanished beyond recall had been utterly wasted. The boys, fresh and buoyant, were doing the same things that he had done. It seemed that not a day had passed since he had left the school, and yet in that place where at least by name he had known everybody, 
Now he knew not a soul. In a few years, these two others taking their place would stand alien as he stood, but the reflection brought him no solace. It merely impressed upon him the futility of human existence. Each generation repeated the trivial round. He wondered, wondered what had become of the boys who were his companions. They were nearly thirty now. Some would be dead, but others were married and had children. They were soldiers and parsons, doctors, lawyers. They were staid men who were beginning to put youth behind them. Had any of them made such a hash of life as he? He thought of the boys he had been devoted to. It was funny. He could not recall his name. He remembered exactly what he looked like. He had been his greatest friend, but his name would not come back to him. He looked back with amusement on the jealous emotions he had suffered on his account. It was irritating not to recollect his name. He longed to be a boy again, like those he saw sauntering through the quadrangle, so that avoiding his mistakes, he might start fresh and make something more out of life. He felt an intolerable loneliness. He almost regretted the penury which he had suffered during the last two years, since the desperate struggle merely to keep body and soul together had deadened the pain of living. In the sweet Sorry, in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou earn thy daily bread. It was not a curse upon mankind, but the balm which reconciled it to existence. But Philip was impatient with himself. He called to mind his idea of the pattern of life, the happiness, the unhappiness he had suffered, was no more than part of a decoration which was elaborate and beautiful. He told himself, strenuously, that he must accept with gaiety everything dreariness and excitement, pleasure and pain, pain, because it added to the richness of the design. He sought for beauty consciously, and he remembered how even as a boy he had taken pleasure in the Gothic cathedral as one saw it from the precincts. He went there and looked at the massive pile, grey under the cloudy sky, with the, cathedral, with the central tower that rose like the praise of men to their god. But the boys were batting at the nets, and they were lissom and strong and active. He could not help hearing their shouts and laughter. The cry of youth was insistent, and he saw the beautiful thing before him only with his eyes. Alright, there we go, another chapter down. Philip having a little nostalgia there. Have your say about that chapter over at the subreddit. Have a vote for the next book if you haven't done that yet. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.